Hello, and welcome to this property podcast from EG. I'm Tim Burke, EG's Deputy Editor. We're talking about climate resilience in the real estate industry, the social impact of sustainability strategies, and how property companies can harness data and analytics to mitigate risks on the roadmap. Over this 35-minute discussion, you'll hear the views of Janine Cole, Director of Sustainability and Community at GPE, Twin Views' Rob Charlton, and Samantha Carlson, Senior Sustainability Manager at Derwent London. They'll outline some of the schemes that show the art of the possible for real estate, some of the mistakes that the industry has needed to make to learn from, and the collaboration that all companies now need to put at the heart of their business. Enjoy. We're talking about climate resilience, and I wanted to kick off with an idea of what that looks like as a concept within real estate companies like GPE and Derwent. So Janine, I, I wonder if you could start us off with with GPE's view of what that phrase means to you as a business practice and as an attribute for um, for the company and its portfolio. Then maybe some thoughts from Samantha and, and Rob. We can then look at, at what certain digital and tech offerings can bring to that. Janine, would it be all right to go to you first? Sure. So I think um, for us, climate resilience is about businesses' capability to adapt and continue to thrive despite the impact of climate change. So that could be um, through the lens of physical changes, so such as higher temperatures, flash flooding, that sort of thing, but also through the lens of transitional risks. So um, how you know the impact of legislation as the economy shifts to a lowest um, carbon economy, um, also speed of innovation and technology, um, and so how as a business we deal with those risks. And then also it's about our customers because they will be impacted too. It's about our suppliers because it may well impact our ability to deliver what we deliver, want to deliver. Um, And it's also about our communities because they need to thrive too if we're to thrive. Um, And I think it's if you sort of wrap all that up together, then it's about the effect of all that on our business model and and ultimately also our financial returns as well, because 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 we're we're also here to deliver that um, for our investors. So um, so buildings, business model, wider community, supply chain, customers, in a nutshell. Samantha, seen through a similar lens, I suppose, at Derwent. Yeah, I mean, exactly what Janine said. It's it's very similar and it's yeah, sustaining our business model and so we can continue to operate in the, the changing uh, climate and reducing the risk for our occupiers, sup- supply chain uh, uh, and stakeholders and, and communities. Rob, how do, how do tech offerings impact um impact this agenda within real estate something like twinview for example or, or or other offerings how how does data that analytical side and technology um what does that bring to bear on on this issue for real estate i think the first thing to say is we're a business as well I mean, twinview is part of a larger group so that's very important to us as a business um the whole resilience thing and certainly all the things that um, Janine and Samantha have said uh, are very relevant to us as well. Um, and my take on this, it's all happened very, very fast. And I think the businesses that are flexible and are willing to innovate and, and adapt are, are the ones that are going to get um, a little bit further ahead than maybe the competitors or the, the early adopters. And I think if you've got a 
change culture anyway in your business, you'll be able to adapt. But I think it, it has happened incredibly fast um, how the world has changed and whether or not that's down to the whole COVID change and hybrid work. And I, I'm not quite sure. I don't I don't know. Um, maybe COP had an impact on that. But for, from our point of view, I guess putting a, a very fine um, sort of commercial position on it, I think it's also opportunity. Uh, certainly for, for us, I mean, the whole Twinview um, idea came around um, sort of probably eight years ago. But at that point there, that wasn't necessarily its driver. It was about access to documents and models. But yeah. then over the last two or three years, we've seen a lot of our clients are saying, look, you know, the first thing we need to, to, to address is around um, sustainability and, their, and, and resilience is, I think a lot of the starting point for all of this and probably one of the biggest challenges is finding out where the starting point is and, and where, where the baseline is, because the majority of companies haven't haven't got a clue. And, and I clued ourselves in that. You know, we, we had you know, we, we've got to be a zero carbon business by 2023. But if you don't know where your baseline is and we didn't, um, I think that's often the you know, I think a lot of a lot of companies are just at that point at the moment trying to find out what the baseline is. And how challenging is that? How do you go about finding that baseline from which you're going to to move on? Certainly from our point of view, it's, it has been difficult because a lot of companies and ourselves included, you know, the, the, the most <clears throat> detail in other respects that, that over the last few years we've we've had about certainly about our energy consumption um, has been your, your, um, your utility bill at the end of the year. Every quarter is about as good as it's got. Um, and then I think the scope one, two and three has been great. Um, because it does define what you need, um, but you then realise how much you don't know. Um, by when you start looking at the, your scope one, two, and three, you think, where am I going to get that from? How am I going to do that? Um, and even then, you get the low-hanging fruit, which are you know relatively easy, but then some of them get really tough. Um, so um, yeah, there's there's good data out there, but we need to we need to find it. Samantha, in, in what ways does does Derwent lean on on data and analytics and its sustainability agenda? How and how have you approached some of those challenges that that Rob outlines there? Yeah, I mean it's just um, the the data is really important, um, but trying to you can't reduce what you don't know, um, and so I think scope one and two um, we we've got our head rounds over over the years but but scope three really is the challenge now and it's how we can work with our occupiers to try and measure what we don't know and then reduce and that goes for operational carbon as well as embodied carbon and then uh, going back to what we said before but is it's with the supply chain and real estate has one of the the biggest supply chains um and so how at each stage of that we can get everybody um, kind of involved in measuring and reducing um, and, and monitoring their impact so we can show that there's a reduction uh, because we can't just do it ourselves um, and we need everybody to to be working together to try and do it and uh, yeah I mean collaboration is definitely a buzzword that's going around but it is absolutely key um, and until we can start working together and sharing lessons so the people that have are further along in this journey can help the people that are just starting. And I think as landlords, we're quite in quite a good position in that way because we we do have that uh, opportunity with our occupiers uh, to try and uh, encourage that um, that engagement and help them, um, which in turn will help us. Janine, you touched on that issue of of building bridges with the supply chain. How do you how do you approach that? I mean, a, a business of of GPE scale that's that, you know that's not necessarily a, a simple click your fingers and it's done task. 
No, I mean, I think we've always had a pretty <clears throat> collaborative relationship um, with our supply chain. Um, and, you know, if I think about the way in which we um, work with particularly the people, the teams working on our developments, it's always a very sort of collegiate um, environment in which we work. And I think one of the things that we we worked out fairly early on was that we weren't the ones with all the answers and we might have some, but there was also um, it was important for us to um, really engage with our structural engineers, our architects, our um, services consultants to sort of really understand and get under the, the sort of the skin of it um, to understand their challenges. And one of the things that we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about um, around embodied carbon is that often there's there's hidden embodied carbon um, when you're sourcing materials. So, you know, for example, you can source steel from the UK, um, but it might go around the EU a few times to have various different um, treatments applied to it. And so you perhaps haven't worked that embodied carbon into your model. And I think this is the issue with sort of data. I think we all we all obsess about data quite a lot. I think there's a, there's, there, there are good reasons behind that. Um, but one of the things that, so through the BBP, um, all the signatories to the climate commitment have got to set out their climate resilience strategy within the next 12 months. Um, and it's going to be really interesting um, to see what comes out of that process. Um, some of the introductory work that we've been doing um, ahead of that has identified that there are more than 30 different way uh, metrics being used by real estate companies just to monitor energy and carbon. And, you know, it's no wonder our investors are having problems working out how to compare one business with another. It's almost impossible. And that's why we need to be much more, uh, much clearer on climate resilience and climate change and the impact it's having on our business. And so I think when we set out our strategies over the next 12 months, it's going to be a really great opportunity actually for the industry to really learn um, together. So it's, and, you know, through our supply chains, bringing that learning back to the table for us all to sort of understand and work together is what happened when we set out our net zero carbon pathways. And so it's going to be, you know, really good to get that piece of work going. I think that it's that word together is so important in this instant, isn't it? If, if, if as you're saying, there is there, there are 30 metrics let's say and you want the industry to come together and start using one of those so that all of the all of the conversations are taking place on the same basis then this becomes something that that, that companies can't deal with in isolation you have to have an agreement across this industry about the very language that we're using are we looking to entities like as you say the better buildings partnership to kind of help to drive that to bring to bring industry together uh, definitely bringing industry together um, and you know of course there are other um, industry groups as well you know UKGBC doing some great work in this in this area as well um, but I think that um, one of the things that we also need to recognize is that all our business models are not the same um, and so um, for example if you put a climate resilience strategy of GPE alongside a climate resilience strategy of a business such as Seagrove for example alongside a climate resilience strategy of Aberdeen, they're all going to be quite different because of um, how they own buildings, the type of buildings that they own, who their customer is. Um, and so, yes, we do need to all sort of um, coalesce and come together and work out what the right metrics are. 
but I think also there does need to be an acknowledgement that um, that we can't all have identical metrics because they won't, may not necessarily be appropriate for our businesses. I wanted to talk about the social impact that comes out of, of some of the work being done here. Janine, GPE published its um, social impact strategy a few weeks back now, and um, it was really interesting to see the reaction the reaction that that got from, from across the industry. But how did you, while working through that, how did you bring that in line with the company's existing environmental policies and environment strategy? Because clearly you want those two intertwined to some extent, I would think. So um, this has been a favourite soapbox of mine for a while. Um, <laughs> the fact that um, you can't do the E unless you do the S. Um, and, you know, you have to make um, it, climate change. You, it's about sort of a just transition. Lots of talk about this um, at COP. Um, not as much as I would have liked to have seen. But, you know, you, it was the, the volume is starting to be turned up on this. Ultimately, we know that the people who have the least will be the most impacted by climate change. Real estate has got a great deal of knowledge about decarbonising um, buildings. So why can't we use that knowledge to support the communities that we're working in to really help them along the journey? We're all looking at how can we make our buildings fossil fuel free? So how do we support our communities in doing the same thing? You only need to see what's happened with um, sort of the, the price of gas to know that those people who have the least are going to be massively impacted by those changes. So how can we get on board to support to support those people? Because we've got that knowledge. And I think that that's why we wanted to connect our environmental strategy with our social strategy because we want to be able to share to, to share that knowledge use the resources that we have to the benefit of our communities ultimately if our communities thrive we thrive um, so that's also really important too i think the other thing is as well is real estate has got a long way to go to be seen as being sort of inclusive um, and you know and i think that there is also a real opportunity here for the real estate industry to get out in the communities and sort of work alongside them. And it's not about sitting in your ivory tower and, you know, saying, we'll show you how to do this. It's about working alongside communities and saying, OK, you know, we've got this knowledge. Can it help you? And so that's what we really try to do with our social impact strategy was. Um, and that's also why we brought in the pillar around connecting people with urban nature, because yeah. we know as we make places, by bringing in um, more nature-based solutions, we can really, again, really start to help our communities become more resilient. Rob, what does that um, what does that link between social impact and, and environmental uh, responsibilities look like from your perspective and colleagues? I think there's so much in that. It's, it's it's fascinating just even having this conversation of how much thought now goes into it, how how important it is. Yeah, I think it's a it's a really exciting time to be in our industry, actually. I just because I'm a bit of an old timer, I've been in this game for 30 years, and I can I can kind of reflect back on what the industry was like when I started out, um, and how much change. And I would say even in the last five years, three years, huge change. Um, and even talking about social aspects is um, is really great to hear. Um, I do think. I mean, I, I take on board what Janine's saying. I think the real estate investment trusts. Um, really have a part to play about leading the way 
um, and because often you know there's a bit more scope for investment. Um, your shareholders are, are now encouraging um, uh, real estate investment trusts to. I mean, that's where it comes from. Your shareholders are saying, look, it's something we want to do, and it's making a difference on their, their investment. So I think um, you know it it really can lead the way and use that from a research point of view, from demonstrating. I think that's probably a, a big part that um, real estate investment trusts have on on the social aspects. Um, I even think what, what's interesting for me, and particularly around COP, is around the social aspects internationally, you know, globally, she's probably even globally. I think what, what COP was really interesting was about, you know, it, it, it's not straightforward, but it's certainly easier for developed companies to look at this sort of thing and measure it. And, and it was the real stark difference between, you know, I remember there was a, there was a, um, a great, it wasn't a great image, but there was a, a young Indian child who was, um you know fighting to to feed himself and then we're all talking about sort of um social impact and things like that sorry um the, the carbon thing there's you know there's other parts of the world that the um i think the developed world have got to support and and from our our learning we you know it's, it's no good us sitting back and saying look we've got it all right i think um it's it's a global thing um and if we can learn in the developed world to help um, the third world, and it's it's let's say it's great for us to be on my soapbox and saying they should get themselves you know sorted out when there's kids with no shoes on trying to feed themselves and talk about your different levels of priorities. Um, and I think that's where our learning can can go even further, and that's a big part of the social impact we can have. How can we reduce the carbon in our buildings to to help develop companies uh, countries learn as well? Um, so um, yeah, again, these are all things that. You know, a few years ago, wouldn't have even certainly wouldn't have been mainstream. Um, yep. in, and, and I also think what's changed is <clears throat> I genuinely believe that companies believe in it now. I think there was a lot of, you know, that greenwash and, and you know, um, putting bits of green bling on buildings and things like that. I, I think now companies really genuinely want to make a difference. Um, and a lot has been driven by shareholders, which is encouraging to see. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's really good to invest in these sort of things now because it's it's really um, something that people want and society wants now. The kind of the way that I see it is that for a long time, um, kind of sustainability or ESG and all the various forms almost had to fight to be at the table, whereas now we're at the table and we're, we're part of the key decisions, um, which for me is is really exciting. And you still you still having the the discussion along with all the other kind of um, key things that need to be considered, but but it's on an equal if not higher um, platform. Um, and yeah, having those in kind of all discussions with investors and going to Rob's point, people do actually they are asking this because they can see the the opportunity and value in doing it. Um, and without considering the the social impact that like we're creating the spaces that people live, work and play in, without considering those people um, and the communities that we're, we're in, we're, we're missing the point. And I think all our, um, our occupiers in the supply chain also see that now. Um, and it, it's it's kind of an exciting time um, to be engaging with, with those and with our communities and um, to try and, yeah, bring them along the the journey as well yeah. and I think more kind of schools as well are getting involved and trying to um, raise awareness uh, with the younger generation so we're, we're all starting at a higher baseline. Janine um, how important is it when we're talking about these frameworks these strategies like GPE's social impact strategy how important is 
is it for these to remain flexible for us to be able to revisit them regularly um, take into account what may or may not have changed as opposed to simply putting something in place publishing the document and then thinking that will see us through the next five ten however many years massively important i mean i think if i take so we launched our statement of intent in may 2020 um we then launched our pathway to net zero and um then our social impact um strategy and i think all three will be um, updated um, relatively quickly. Um, social impact particularly because um, in many ways we found that more challenging than we did the net zero carbon pathway because um, we were really um, clear that we wanted to make sure that we included um, diversity, equity and inclusion. We wanted to make sure that we were um, picking up the urban nature piece, we wanted to make sure that we were looking at how we could support organisations addressing fuel poverty. And it was really quite complex to bring those things together. So we didn't always have the sort of what we also wanted to do is make it measurable. Um, but until we get started on some of those things, I think we're going to have to keep changing um, as we learn and grow. Um, the, the pathway, the net zero carbon pathway, for example, is another example. Um, we are all, all we all learn so much by doing those pathways um, as an industry. And I think that everybody who um, sort of came to the BBP um, webinars when we sort of shared experiences of pulling those pathways together, we all learn so much by doing it. And I think that sort of a year on, we will all be looking at actually we might need to change the way we're talking about offsetting, for example, um, because thinking around that has changed so much. Thinking has moved from looking at being sort of quite obsessive about upfront carbon of developments and now more looking at the whole life carbon of the development. And so all these things need to change the way in which you're articulating yourself and your strategies. But I think that's absolutely the way it should be. We're still evolving how accounts are put out. The sort of financial metrics are still changing. Sustainability data is in its relative infancy. And so it would be wrong for us to draw the line down and go, right, that's how we do it. You know, we've got it now. It's cracked. It isn't cracked. Um, and because we're all learning so much, we need to be able to innovate. And actually, we need to get things wrong, too. Um, because ultimately that's how you learn and so there needs to be space for people to go do you know what we we didn't quite get that one right so we're going to go back and rewind and 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 re and have a rethink and I think that that's why it's so important to stay flexible and, and Rob I guess technology again here it, it, it sort of allows us to course correct more efficiently when required I think that's yeah I think it and it's a good point that we're continually learning. I think everybody's continually learning, and is we will make mistakes, and um, and we'll identify new things that we didn't think we needed to know before. So, so with Twinview, it's, it's continually evolving, and we have a roadmap. But to be honest, we've never stuck to it because generally clients are changing things, and the priorities are changing. Mm. Um, and something that um, you know we thought would be further down the line needs to come further forward. There's things, there's bits of information and data that our clients are telling us the need you know re really quickly and so we've been working with gp for for 10 years now and and they've been gp have been very much a part of developing twinview because we, we've developed for the end users and what do they want um and you know needs of business owners changing all the time that they're finding out things they didn't know they're finding out the need information they didn't know so what's been really interesting um uh, 
for us is when you start overlaying people onto buildings. So, you know, it can be very, uh, it can, you know, it, it, the building in some respects can be very objective in its performance because it's, you know, it, it's the temperature, it's all those sorts of things. But then you start overlaying people on it, which um, adds another dimension. Um, and then I think now what's really exciting about buildings is that we are gathering huge amounts of data on buildings now. And I think where it gets really, really interesting is when we start applying machine learning, um, artificial intelligence to that, because then we can really understand them more. And then the really exciting bit is when buildings start thinking for themselves and start feeding back so we can optimise certainly the, um, the the amount of carbon we're using in, in operation. We can really start to understand where we are now is even just at the simplest level, finding out things about our buildings that we didn't know. But, you know, it, it can be as, as simple as that in that, you know, where, where are we leaving the lighting on? Where have we got a room that's being heated to 24 degrees and it doesn't need to be? Where are we heating the building? Even though simplest level. And, and in the past, there's a huge amount of information about buildings, but it's usually in the basement. And there's usually only one or two people have got any idea how to pull that information off. And maybe it's once a year, someone has a look. Um, and now just making that accessible, people are saying, are we really doing that? And so there is some very much low hanging fruit, I think, really to get to the next level. Um, and that's where a lot of real estate investment trusts are now are really pushing boundaries um, of trying to see sort of what's next. How do we really tune our buildings? How do we really get people to use them efficiently? I, I think just to make things even more complicated, um, we've added hybrid working. So that's very new to people. And it, it does give huge opportunities about how we're going to use buildings? Do we need to have them all open up at the same time? Can we can we reduce areas? Do we need to heat full floor plates? So that fundamentally changed how we design buildings and how we design office spaces that they need to be. And when we talk about flexibility now, what are other other areas where we can, you know, we we don't have to heat them at 22 degrees. We can heat them at 18 degrees because they're not going to be used or, or whatever. That uh, I think there's a there's so much happened in a very short space of time. Um, that's what I see. And I see a, a lot of the the new people in joining the industry. I, I don't think, honestly, in my career, I've known a more exciting time to be in the, the, the real estate um, or the construction and design industry. I think there's a lot happening and, and all happening for positive, for the right reasons. Um, and the whole cultural issues of the past are starting to disappear. And I, I think we're very much being driven by um, Generation Z in particular. Um, Generation Z just see this as standard stuff. This is what we should be doing. It's not a case of this is something different. This is what they expect. Um, and you know, Generation Z are increasingly all of our customers, and their expectations are far more aligned um, with the sort of um, environmental agenda, the social agenda, um, inclusion, um, all those sorts of things. Um, and again, all, all for the good. I'm interested in all your thoughts on on some of the buildings that have um, that have tackled some of these issues the best. And I thought it might be it might be nice to to finish the discussion with um, with each of your thoughts on a scheme that you think is particularly inspiring. It doesn't have to be one that you or your company have worked on, but it is allowed to be, of course. Um, but but a, a scheme, a project that you think maybe shows what can be achieved in terms of real estate making a difference across across any or all ESG factors. Rob, if I were to pick on you first, um, what would what would spring to mind for you? 
I'm going to get in before Janine because I suspect it might be. Um, <laughs> I was hoping who are you going to pick first because it. Look, to be honest, with, and this is not blown smoke and for, um, for, for GPE, um, but the the project that's probably the most advanced um, for us in relation to gathering data and being connected is the Hickman Building in Whitechapel, um, and that you know that 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 project in relation to being a really efficient digital twin is probably four or five year old because you've got it four, four, five in, four or five years in the making. So it was around connecting the building up, having a, uh, certainly from GPE's point of view, they wanted to have a building where they, they knew more about it, they understand, understood more about it. And that is now, um, I mean, it was the first smart score platinum building in the world. Um, and we're sort of at the stage now is where with a discovery stage of understanding because we've got everything connected up and it's a it's a full digital twin i think we're at that stage now where understanding how the building works um and i'm sure from gp's point of view that will inform future buildings um you know understanding how buildings are used how can they be more flexible um so yeah um i say that's that's probably for, for us but there's lots of more lots more coming online but probably the most advanced for us with the, the depth, but but also, again, this is sort of slightly embarrassing with a GP person on the, not embarrassing, but um, the, the, they really mean it. It's not a case of us just adding a bit of software. It's something that it's been an ongoing relationship. We've worked together. You know, what we don't want to do is just go and put a piece of software and work, walk away. You know, we genuinely want, you know, Twinview was developed in the first place for all the right reasons, that we found you know, buildings were inefficient um, and we were, you know, there was an opportunity there um, and I think it's nice to be now working with lots of clients that that really want to genuinely improve things um, and, and find out how their buildings are being used and um, and are continually looking to, to um, address those issues. Now in case Janine was also going to pick the Hickman I'll give her a, a, a bit of time to, to prep the <laughs> next choice. Samantha if, if I can turn to you next. <laughs> It's yeah, it's difficult to to pick one one project, and in some ways, I want to say we we haven't got there yet, and it's it's about what we're we're doing now for the the next one. And I think one of the the challenges, but the opportunities is, um, we design buildings that will be built kind of years down the line, and so technology and industry and the the supply chain will be a very different and what people expect from our buildings will be very different and so it's trying to guess and oh well uh, kind of make sure that they are flexible and adaptable and controllable and run efficiently for future using today's technology and what we know about the industry and so it, it can be well I think it's exciting in kind of our new developments where we're talking about major refurbishments where we have we can talk about all the things that are to come and how we can engage with the industry to make sure by the time that we're building it that we're there um but i think on the the flip side it's looking at our existing buildings and saying right what can we do with this how can we um make this future proof and um, whether that's yeah uh, refurbishment um updating all the kits so it's all electric and so for all our um occupiers that are to come they still get a, a the existing building, so reducing that that element of embodied carbon, hopefully reducing the whole life embodied carbon as well. But it's still an efficient, it's still a a modern building that that um, attracts our, our occupiers. So yeah, it's a tricky answer, tricky question. <laughs> I, I, I but I think that's an important point that it's not simply about looking forward, but also looking at the existing portfolio, the older buildings, and working out what can be what can be done there. 
Janine, was it you can you can be honest? Would you have picked the Hickman as well? Well, the Hickman did flash through my mind, yes. but also <laughs> what also flashed through my mind is something similar to what Samantha's just said. I mean, I think there speaks um, somebody in sustainability who is always pushing to say we want more, and I think that that's the point um, because we're learning more and more and so um you know for me um what we're doing at the hickman is absolutely great um and we're learning a lot um but also what i would want to see happen more is is use more nature-based solutions to have sort of passive solar shading um i want to so you know so from that point of view the hickman doesn't um tick that box to quite the extent i would like it to tick it um, because we're learning and we're still sort of we're, we're, we're moving on. And I think one of the things, if I go back to one of our buildings at 160 Old Street, that was the building where we first realised we could start to bring in um, a digital twin. It was also where we started to explore more around tech. And it was just sort of building where we just started to sort of pull and see what was possible. You know, it was what's the art of the possible of this building? And that kind of innovative approach that we took in that building we really learned a lot from and that sort of rolled on from building to building and so i think the most important thing actually is that we learn from my, from each one of our last buildings if that makes sense so we'll be delivering 50 finsbury square next next year i nearly said next week it would have given my team a heart attack um so we're delivering 50 finchby square next year it will be our first net zero carbon building we're using sort of elements of the circular economy within that building there's more around climate resilience um but there's more to be done and to Aldenbury square will be the next step ahead of that and so i think and there are lots of buildings internationally where um, you can see that sort of nature-based solutions really starting to bring forward. And for me, the challenge is not just about <clears throat> when this building's completed, how can we make it work really well? Um, but it's also about how can we design this building to make sure that it doesn't use so much air conditioning in the first place um, by using sort of passive solar shading, by using the green roofs, green walls, all that sort of thing. So it, it makes such a difference. But also then what can we do to support the community around that building so that what we're not doing is creating more of an urban heat island effect. And so there's so much to be done still that for me to say, yes, this is this is absolutely where we should be aiming. I, I just think we're we're not there. I think you're right. And as you say, it is a constant learning process. And I think we've sort of we've returned to that point, haven't we, throughout the throughout the discussion. It is it's an ongoing process and you learn something from each new project, Um, in which case I suppose we shouldn't claim that this discussion has been the final word on on anything. But hopefully, hopefully has nonetheless raised some um, raised some interesting points. And um, and look, Samantha. Rob, Janine, really grateful that you've been able to to share your thoughts and your time with EG today. So thank you all. And thank you for listening to this property podcast from EG. Remember that you can keep up to date with all of our ESG and sustainability focused news and features on our dedicated hub, which you can find at egi.co.uk forward slash sustainability.